It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years. Well, good evening, North Carolina, and thanks for joining us once again on Money Matters with the Lewis family. This is Linda Lewis. And this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Okay, if you have a question, call us tonight on the open lines. Call us at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. And we will go ahead and deal with any financial question you have. In the financial presses this week was a, a article, Doug and Linda, that was asking the question, should you insure a college education? More families are using life insurance policies to save. Weighing the pros and cons and discussing it is a huge part of what uh, people are writing about these days. Well, you know, Deborah, uh, that probably is the result of a study that came out recently that pointed to the fact that 19% of college saving plans uh, are going to be tapped to pay for future tuition. In other words, 19% of people who are planning on going to college are planning to use there are uh, these tuition plans and uh, that, uh, you know, that's only half the story. That's right. That's right. According to an annual survey uh, that was released, uh, I think they even added that uh, a large percentage of these people are going to tap their life insurance policies to help pay for tuition costs. That's exactly the whole point is that about half of those folks who are planning on paying for college are going to life insurance policies. The other half are those 529 prepaid tuition plans. Now, um, if you're if you're going to think about insurance, what's the sales pitch behind this? Well, it, it, there's a little story behind this, Deborah. It, it's what happened in 2008. The yes, financial sir? crisis damaged the reputation of 529 plans. Oh, right, yes. That's what really happened. During the downturn in 2008, 2009, investors in a lot of these 529 prepaid tuition plans incurred steep losses, and that decline opened up an opportunity for the life insurers to ramp up their sales pitch, their marketing of what's called life insurance for college and so is this sort of an alternative to 529 plans? That's the way they're being promoted. Earnings in the policies, in a life insurance policy, grows tax deferred. Earnings in a 529 plan 
grow tax deferred. So on the surface, they smell the same. And really, one of the, one or two of the biggest insurance companies right now, Allianz, uh, was quoted in the press, uh, and AIG, another one. They've been training their own advisors to pitch these policies to clients now for, for three years going. Massachusetts Mutual has also run large marketing campaigns promoting whole life policies as a way to help pay for college. So, so how do these policies work? Yeah, well, this is the story. The policyholder mom or dad, they pay a premium, a portion of which helps pay for a death benefit. Then in that premium, another portion goes into an investment vehicle, and that is supposedly to be designed to pay for college. So the insurance company just takes that monthly premium, part of it goes to pay for death benefits, the other part's put into what's called a cash account, and the insurance company is choosing how to invest the funds in exchange, they give the policyholders a minimal guaranteed return. Okay, well, so far not bad and, and not great. Uh, what's usually used inside these? Well, the whole life policies, they give them very specific amounts of cash available. So they have to have something very, very conservative. And when you do the math, the the return is really 2 to 3%. Okay, now this does not sound good. No, uh, that's what actually is happening there. Now, that's just for one kind of whole life policy. There's another kind of whole life policy being promoted yeah. to help pay for college, and these are the indexed universal life policies. Hmm. They offer a rate that varies each year, and it's pegged to the performance of a specific index, like the S&P 500 index. Okay. So basically, this is a sales pitch to purchase these types of policies uh, with the hope of having a benefit for college expense. Is that is that correct? That's exactly right, Linda. It is a sales pitch, and it's what I would call competing with beating a dead horse because, as we'll see, if we start comparing the two, there are other ways to pay for kids' college. But the premiums on these policies... These are called permanent life insurance policies. They're much, much higher than a term insurance policy. Just as an example, a 40-year-old male who signs up for a term policy for $2 million if he dies in 30 years, he's going to pay only 2600 a year for his insurance premium. But if he has that same policy... And it's a whole life policy. Instead of two thousand six hundred, it's going to cost him twenty nine thousand dollars a year. And so, this is a big, big deterrent. But on the other hand, you can see uh, why the first three years of those whole life policies, you don't have any cash value because what's happening there is there the, the commissions have been paid. So even if you were to consider using an insurance policy with this benefit to be right. able to pay for college, you've now the first huge thing you've got to overcome as a hurdle is I need at least three years to even be able to start using this policy to be able to pay for my child's education. Right. It sounds good. $29,000 a year. I'm putting it away right. to my kid's college. Right. But try and get your money out in the first three years and you get zero because commissions can eat up anywhere between 50% and 120% of the policyholder's premiums. So that's really why it takes most of these policies at least eight to ten years to accumulate enough cash to pay for college. Okay, well, 
Now, so the now, typical parent out there, you know, once you have children and you want to send them to college, uh, the, the typical parent is is either going to save in a savings account or a money market or in a some kind of an account, a mutual fund, or they'll go to a 529 or one of these prepaid tuition plans. And now but comes the insurance. It what says, you're saying, Doug, is that, and what this article is saying is that, that there are people out there that are selling insurance as an alternative, as an alternative. to the 529 plan because the 529 plan lets you take out the money tax deferred. It grows tax free. And the insurance, you take the money out as a loan. And but if and the policy, so my question is, okay, or or that if you're out there and someone is trying to either sell or explain this type of policy to you, ask questions, right? Right, Doug. Well, right, Deborah? sure. But I think the bottom line is that this is this doesn't seem to be a very viable. It doesn't seem like a good solution. Yeah, there's, there's more. A couple, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay, there's. A, I mean, because then, then, then you have to consider. Well, parents who who stuck with the plans for the long run, like let's say the benefits, the five twenty nine, and what, and and even if they fell flat and they didn't offer them what they wanted, parents' life insurance policies aren't counted as an asset in financial aid formulas. So now you have to consider about your FAFSA forms. I mean. It sounds like it's another way to just do the basic thing to try and save money for college and you can just save money for college. Yeah, there's much there are other ways to pay for college than putting money into the 529 plan which has its negatives, yes it does, right. or the insurance which in my opinion is even a worse deal. <laughs> right. Uh, and the way to go ahead and to pay for college planning in my opinion is See a financial planner right, who can help right, you. Right. So we, we have had no problem with any of our clients over the last 30 years paying for their kids' college education right. because it's part of the overall financial plan. Exactly. And for many of the kids who go to college, many of the times we've accumulated the money in the parent's name outside of both of these, and then comes time for college, and we use the uh, Parent Plus program. Right. There's we, just a lot of options out there. There are. Uh, but but I like Linda's bottom line. Be careful. Don't listen to the sales pitch. Ask a lot of questions. If you are being told, use insurance to pay for your kid's college. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. If you've got a question, join us on the join show. Join us as we... Uh, call us on the open line at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. And don't forget to check our website. See, look at our website, DougAndLinda.com. And if you make an appointment with us, we are still giving away for your first appointment a free copy of The Middle Class Millionaire. And uh, uh, yeah. give, us, give us a call. <laughs> All right. Everyone needs financial planning. It doesn't matter what age and stage of life you're at, but make sure that you take time um, and write down your questions and work with a certified financial planner that can address your financial planning issues. Call us at Lewis Financial Management during the week in Raleigh. You can call us right now and leave a message. The number is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com, DougAndLinda.com. Let's take a caller now. 
Well, George, how can I help you? This is Doug Lewis. Doug, I have a question about mutual funds. What advantage, if any, is there to be had in buying a load mutual fund? And if there's no advantage, why are there so many of them? The advantage to buying a no-load fund? A load fund. Oh, that's real simple. That's like saying, what's the advantage of going ahead and getting a real estate broker to sell my house for me when I can sell it myself? Uh, I thought you were going to ask the other question, what's the advantage of a no-load fund? And well, there isn't. either way. I'd like to know the advantages going either way. All right. Well, uh, first of all, there is no real advantage of, you, of buying a, a no-load fund or a load fund. There is no real difference between them. That's not the way you look at the issue. What you really want to know is what's the performance and how has the fund with its managers done to make money over a length of time? And uh, that's all you do. You just go ahead and you find the, if, a, if a particular set of, of managers can make more money for you than another set of managers, then go with that manager and don't worry about if you had to go ahead and you know, pay a few dollars uh, to find uh, a broker or a planner to put you into that fund. I, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Depends how long the money's going to be there too. If you're going to put a, pay a 5% load on a fund and you plan to keep your money there only three years, yeah, then that's wrong. On the other hand, if you're looking for a long, and, but you shouldn't be in the, in the mutual funds if you could be doing that anyway, because mutual funds are for long-term investing, at least five years. And over a five-year period, you'll find that 5% walks down to about a half a percent or 1%, and then over a 10-year period, it becomes an infinitesimal amount. The other thing is most no-load funds have high fees inside the fund. Yeah, right, no, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, nobody works for free. So, so really, uh, so really you, you've got to just forget about that and make the decision on what your needs are and the quality of the fund. That's right. Look at the managers. Remember, a mutual fund is a group of men's minds who are going into the pit for you on Wall Street, and they're buying and selling stocks, and you're looking at their ability to select and their long-term performance record. Or if it's a bond fund, it's a group of men who are making their uh, decisions on what bonds to buy and what bonds to sell and so forth. That's the whole key to this thing. They never see the load. That doesn't go to them. That goes that goes to the broker or the planner, whoever it is, uh, that's putting the money with them. Do you, uh, do you make recommendations to your clients on which funds to go into? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, I do. I'd rather not on the air yeah, because well, I don't like, yeah, I don't like to step on anybody's feet. Right. But yeah, uh, um, I track as many of the funds that I feel are good. And I guess every planner has their own special ones that they feel comfortable that have done well over a five or 10 or 20 year period or whatever. And if there's anything we can do to help you with that, you can call our office here in Raleigh at 8727000 and we'll see what we can do to help you. Well, be in touch then. All right. Thank you for calling, George. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. Well, Doug, um, there was another interesting article that we saw in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I saw that article, too. It was about if you're not saving, you're losing out. And I thought that was just so catchy. So I read the article and the whole topic was about knowing the amount that you save as a percentage of your post tax income. And Doug, the article specifically said over the years uh, that this gentleman had met many different types of Americans and the and uh, he he really was talking about clients who or people who are similar to the clients that we meet with year after year. And those are Americans who have amassed seven figure portfolios and many of them don't have huge paychecks and most were just so so investors. And he said 
they shared one key attribute. What was that one key attribute? <laughs> they had great savings habits. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm glad that he agrees with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we've been preaching for about right. 30 years now. Right. What that's is it? exactly right. Yeah. You always say it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. That's exactly right. You have to be saving. If you're not saving, you're losing. And then it comes down to a couple of things. First of all, no apologies. There is no reason for an apology. You know, uh, yesterday I had a uh, a company come and do an annual event where they took where they emptied our uh, they drained our, our septic tank. Okay. And the 19 year old boy who was uh, working there, uh, doing the job for me. Uh, he was bemoaning the fact that his life was running away and he had wasted Aww. so much time and everything. And poor guy, he didn't have a college education. And so what did you say? Well, I asked him, first of all, how old he was. And he said he was 19. I said, <laughs> I said, it's okay. Your life hasn't run away just yet. But I said, I can tell you one crucial thing to do. You should yes. take every paycheck you get. He gets paid once a week. Okay. I said, every paycheck you get. Put aside 10% of right. what you pay. Wow. He said, well, I do more than that now in every, every wow. paycheck. <laughs> I said, you don't have anything to worry about. I said, you're doing just fine. Right. You don't worry about whether you're emptying septic tanks. You need to just get these habits. And if you keep this habit, as you find out what life has in store for you in the future, you will accumulate a lot of money. You really will. I mean, the guideline is usually, you know, you need to save 10%, but really, in reality, 12 to 15 is going to is going to probably serve you more. Now, granted, uh, this young man is an example of that, uh, you know, person saving more. What are some of the guidelines, Doug? Well, I think the first guideline has to do with uh, any... Uh, any, well, you have to look at your expenses. Okay. I always want to look at your expenses, but not all of your expenses. Okay. I like to divide your expenses into three categories. All right. The first category of your expenses, those are your recurring monthly expenses. That's your lifestyle. Okay. How much you're spending on gasoline each month, how much you're spending on a mortgage if you're paying it, how much on going out to dinner or pizzas, how much, all of your monthly expenses, those are your recurring monthly expenses. Those are your RMEs, we call them. Okay. Then number two, you got to add in there anything that's not monthly but is fixed and you have no choice on it. How about my car insurance? Uh, if you pay that quarterly, that's exactly right. Okay. Some people pay it monthly, so it's a recurring monthly. Some pay it quarterly. Semi-annually. Semi-annually. That's exactly right. Okay. And then, of course, the third category of expenses are the all the others. The discretionary. The discretionary. That's going to be vacation, clothing, gifts, all those things. And the what if my car breaks down, my maintenance. But coming back to the first thing is to find out what's your recurring monthly expenses. And once you've got those recurring monthly expenses in place, okay. you now need to go to your recurring monthly income. How many septic tanks are you emptying each month or whatever? Whatever is your recurring income, income yeah. you know what it is. Right. And then you subtract the one from the other and you set up an automatic savings with the surplus. Okay. So let's say I have 3000 a month coming in. Yes. And I spend $2,000 a month on my fixed monthly expenses. And that's not counting my discretionary or right. those other things. Right. That means... For a good number of months during the year, I have a $1,000 a month surplus. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, the, and, and that 1000 a month, 
And we'll assume that's after tax because you, right. it's your paycheck coming in. That's right. I'm going to then say that thousand a month needs to automatically be drafted from your checking account at the beginning of the month. Okay. Not after the month is over. Ah. And to go straight into an investment account. I like a mutual fund as a better place. Let it go in automatically. What do you think we call that? Pay yourself first. Pay yourself first. Because you got to pay everybody else, but you might as well pay yourself first. Right. Once you figure out on paper how much are those recurring expenses, then you don't wait till you've had you've paid those expenses. You know what they are on paper. Now you pay yourself at the beginning. Okay. And of course, as soon as we teach clients this method, right away we find out they're going to say, "Well, but what about one of those other expenses that mm-hmm. pops up?" Mm-hmm. Well, then you you just don't pay yourself that month. That's right. You just back it off that month. But you're setting up a default system where you're paying yourself first, and that is going to accumulate, and that is the way to do it. Okay. Now, say I'm an average person, and I have my $1,000 every every few months of, 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 I'm sorry, most months of a surplus of my cash flow, and I've set it up. And then by the end of the year, um, my aunt gives me a large gift at the holidays or I get a raise at the end, uh, midway through the year. Any Mm -hmm. sort of a big windfall to me. Right. That windfall then needs to be immediately dumped into that pay yourself first fund because you weren't expecting it. It is not to be, uh, oh, here's some new money. Let's spend it. Okay. No, 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 no. Dump that into the same account and have that as the double habit. One, pay yourself first. And number two, all windfalls and you will become financially independent. And that's usually just as simple as that. You just start saving, save as much as you can, get it to the 10%, 12%, 15%. And before you know it, you're one of these Americans who uh, gets written about where you've amassed a seven-figure portfolio. And you're a middle class millionaire. We've seen it. We've seen it happen through year after year. We certainly have. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Join us on the show this evening. Call us on the open line at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. And if you would like to set up an appointment to meet with a certified financial planner, call us at Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000, and we'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you so that you can address your financial planning needs and issues. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. Well, Doug, um, you know, there was a very, very excellent article that we saw in the Wall Street Journal and it was entitled, Who's Inheriting Your 401k? Linda, I'm glad you caught that article because most Americans believe that their retirement savings will be divided according to the instructions in their will, just like all their other assets. But that is not the case. In fact, who inherits retirement money is usually determined by the language on the beneficiary designation forms that people filled in years and years and years ago, and they've totally forgotten it. And usually things have changed. So among some of those changes that you might not be aware of is naming your beneficiary as your parent and while you're single 
and then failing to update that later when you get married. So you want to check it if that's changed in your life or naming your children, but not stipulating that the money should go to your grandchildren if any of your children die before you. So these are some of the common mistakes. They are. And, you know, let's say you have mistakenly uh, left a marriage beneficiary or let me say it another way. Let's say you have mistakenly forgotten that a former spouse was still named was still named <laughs> as your beneficiary. You know, basically even if, what you're saying is you got divorced and you got remarried you, uh, and took care of, of you know settling all, matters, but, but you didn't deal with this thing here. And even if your assets were were, ex, were were divided into the divorce settlement, that beneficiary that you have hanging around there from 30 years earlier, They'll that still. supersedes. Yeah. So we can have a lot of problems here. Another one that's not so um, negative but is also practical is there, there can, it can be a situation where a parent has given a child part of the business or the child has taken over the business and the other three children, they may have no inheritance to speak of and the parent might want to leave the, uh, retire, the retirement plan to the other three children who aren't going to inherit in another way. Very common. And if you didn't change it, then now you have the four children, let's say in our example inheriting the IRA and it's not so fair and it wasn't what the parent wished so those you know so those desires are you know whatever your desires are for your assets to be transferred you know uh, when you set up your investment authorization form I know that what you have to designate a specific beneficiary. You do. So you need to revisit that right Doug I mean that's yeah. the essence of what this article saying is that you set it Things up, change. and then you work for years, sometimes decades, and you've accumulated money in your IRA. But what should happen, Doug? Well, you're right, Lynn. There are so many situations. The article cited one client who named her live-in boyfriend as a beneficiary of her IRA, and later she moved away, married another man, and as she lay dying of cancer, her husband tried to get the beneficiary form revised, but she was no longer mentally competent to make the change. Yeah. I mean, story after story are, 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 are always in front of us. If your adult child dies before you and you don't change your beneficiary forms, that child's heirs will typically be cut out of any bequest that you mean to give to them. And here you need to know that each state has its own laws as to how assets will pass, per sterpes, per capita. You need to know these things. That's exactly right. And a financial planner is exactly uh, the person who's going to help you deal with all these issues. Yes, it's just an IRA, but then there's a beneficiary form, and then there's estate planning considerations. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. If you've got a question about your 401k or who's going to inherit your IRA, call us on the open line at WPTF. Call us at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. So those matters need to be addressed and that may be one of the questions that you need to put on your financial planning checklist who have i designated as the beneficiary of my ira that's right or my 401k you know linda deborah i am so uh i'm so surprised because this 
seems so basic. We do it every day. The first thing that we do when we meet with clients is we go over these very issues, designation of IRA beneficiaries, designation of 401k beneficiaries. We look at the will. We All of these things seem to be so basic, but it's sort of unfair to think that a the, the average citizen is going to be doing them themselves. And so you're both exactly right. You should find a certified financial planner who includes all of these uh, services in what they are doing. And of course, that's what we do. Call us at Lewis Financial Management, LLC in Raleigh at 919-872-7000 and set up your appointment uh, for an introductory meeting. Um, our number is 919-872-7000. So, Doug, if we're talking about, you know, IRAs or 401ks, but specifically IRAs being inherited by children, what is the best way to handle IRA beneficiaries uh, when they are too young to sensibly handle money so that it can be available to them later? Yeah, this becomes a bigger problem. Okay. You know, let's say that you are... In your 70s, you have worked all these years, you've accumulated a large uh, retirement plan, whether it be a 401k that was rolled into an IRA or a series of, but you've got a large retirement account. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know that at your death, you wanted to go to your wife if you are a male, and if you're a female, you wanted to go to your husband. Okay, but then the question is, what about my kids? Hmm. Do I really want my kids to have dumped on them at the age at a very young age. Yeah, let's say, let, let's say for example, that you had kids who were like 21, 25, and 27. Do They're you not want, even 30 years old that's yet. That's right. Do you want to dump on them a couple million dollars? And clients ask that question, what's the way to handle this so that they don't get in trouble? And there are two methods that are being promoted these days. One option is to name a trust as the beneficiary of the IRA instead of naming the children outright. Well, I like that. Yeah. The typical thing you see is a spouse is the first beneficiary and then the beneficiary form says, if my spouse is not living, then it goes to my children, which is the problem. So now we could say if my if my children, if my spouse is not living, it would go to a trust. That's exactly right. That's one way. way. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's the other way? The other way is uh, it's known as the trustee IRA and or the individual retirement trust. And here, the IRA provider serves as the trustee, distributing the IRA assets to the beneficiaries as you stipulate. Now, these two methods both are being uh, talked about, and they're very good methods, but they are... Uh, they're, they're very difficult. There's a lot of uh, very specific regulations and cost in doing it this way. Okay. Personally, I like to use the method that we use in our firm, which is very different from these two methods, which would be method number three. I happen to think that we have solved the real problem without all of the cost and the uh, problems that uh, the IRS is imposing on these two methods that are used. And what's that method? Well... Let's say that I have named my spouse as my first beneficiary, but if she is not alive, I don't name my children. Okay. I name my estate as the beneficiary. All right. So now if my spouse has passed away, then this whole IRA comes back to my estate. Okay. Now what? In my will... 
my instructions are that anything that I own at my death, if my spouse is not alive, will have will go into a trust for my children. And now all of those assets come into the estate and flow into the children's trust and there is no IRS requirement now to regulate it. Now it is uh-huh. true there is taxes. Okay. But now I can say I want my children to get a monthly income for the next 10 years after I die or until they are age 30 or 40, whatever. And then I'd like a quarter of that trust to go out to each of the kids at that time when they hit a certain age at 40 or at 45 or at 50. You can design the children's trust any way you want. And there's no IRS regulations that are being superimposed on you. And the nice thing is the trustee who runs the trust, very often we have it be a relative or it might even be one of the children themselves. So th- so it sounds like you really can solve the problem using this technique. You've, number one, given the uh, the wealth to the trust to be parceled out. You spoke about the income starting immediately uh, to the children for their benefit. And in addition, you didn't make it so cumbersome that there was going to be a lot of cost involved that was going to eat away at it. That's right. That's exactly right. So avoiding the issues that the two options which are being uh, talked about by state attorneys, you may pay more taxes but you have a much cleaner way to do what you want to do with your children. Well, very nice. That sounds like an excellent solution. It certainly does. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us on the open line with your questions. The number to call is 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. Let's take another caller. Hi, Jeanette. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Hi. We're in our middle 50s, and we're about to make an appointment to either have a living trust or a will, and I don't know the difference between them. What would be the best for us? Now, you say that you're getting ready to have a meeting with the financial planner? Well, no, with a lawyer. We really need to have something set up because our adult kids really don't know what we have, and we just need to have the difference between living trust and a will. Right. I can help you understand a little bit, but my first advice is don't meet with the attorney first. Meet with a certified financial planner that will educate you on how it ties together everything that you've got and then go to the attorney next. It will cost you much less that way. Is that right? Yes, because so many times I see clients coming to me with unfunded living trust and I ask them, why'd you do it? And they say, well, my attorney said I should do it. I say, well, wonderful. You realize you've got a toothless dog here. You created a trust, but it's not going to do a single bit of good for you because the benefits that you're expecting to get from it won't happen unless it's been funded. Well, the attorney never told me about funding them, and the attorney generally doesn't do the funding and so forth. So I would recommend that you meet with a fee-based certified financial planner. That's someone who you're going to pay a fee for. He's not going to try and sell you anything. But he will go ahead and look at your assets. There are many cases where you don't need a living trust and many cases that you do. There are many attorneys that don't like living trust because it cheats them out of fees later on. Uh, That's the view of some attorneys. And there are many who feel that it's the best thing there is. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Now, to give you some quick little down and dirty pieces of information so that I haven't failed to answer your question. A living trust 
is generally revocable, which means that you can change your mind any time between now and the time you die. It has two sections to it generally. One section deals with the things that you want to happen during your lifetime. Those are called the living provisions. And then you have the testamentary provisions or what you want to do happen at your death. And that's the same thing as a will. So it's got two provisions in there. Obviously, a will has nothing to do with your during your lifetime. But a living trust has two parts. It functions both during your lifetime and at your death. The IRS tells you that the revocable living trust has no taxable benefit to you whatsoever because you can change your mind. But the reason people very often want a revocable living trust is that it avoids the cost of probate at death because if you put everything you own in the name of this revocable living trust while you're alive, then at the time you die, you personally didn't own anything. This trust owned everything, and so there's nothing to go through probate, and all of the fees that you would generally pay an attorney to probate your estate are avoided. That's one reason people like revocable living trust. Another reason people like revocable living trust is that at death, you know how there's very often a nine-month delay to go through the probate process? Right. Well, there's no delay. Anything that's in the trust can be distributed immediately according to the provisions in the trust. A third reason people like revocable living trust are confidentiality. At the time that you die, only the stuff that you own personally, in other words, only things that are not owned by this trust, are in the newspaper or available for public disclosure. Trust assets are never available to the public knowledge. Another reason that people like revocable living trust, probably one of the most important reasons that I recommend them for my senior citizens, is in the sake of incapacitation. If you don't die, but you get disabled, if you get paralyzed, you don't have to use a power of attorney to, or a person doesn't have to have a power of attorney to continue to administer your assets, to take things from your investments, to pay your medical bills and so forth. Those are the reasons people want a revocable living trust. The differences between a revocable living trust and a will are basically the lifetime provisions. In other words, the what if I'm incapacitated? What if I'm disabled? There are obviously no, nothing like that in a will because a will doesn't start happening until you die. But a revocable living trust starts happening today. But the other thing you need to understand is all people don't need revocable living trust and all assets can't go into revocable living trust such as your retirement accounts and your IRAs. And then there's the question of, do you want one revocable living trust for the two of y'all, or do you want separate ones? Uh, really, you need to meet with a financial planner who can go over your assets. He's got to see everything. The, right. attorney, the attorney doesn't look at your assets. You, you need to understand that. When you meet with the attorney, you won't bring him copies of all your bank accounts and copies of your brokerage funds and all of that. But when you meet with the financial planner, yes, he wants to see everything that you own. So he can then get a picture and tell you whether he thinks it's worthwhile for you to pay the additional cost to have sure. a revocable living trust produced. Now, we've moved 19 times all over the country, that's and a, we never know if we're going to move again. That's another reason that many people like revocable living trust. That's a very good reason that people choose revocable living trust is because the probate process at death, if you die tomorrow and you own things in different states... Very often, you've got to go through probate in each of those states if you own it in, uh, outright. But if you own it in revocable living trust, you don't. I see. You see, each one of these issues is a question that really needs to be outlined much more in detail in front of a financial planner. Sure. Does, does that help you at all to get yeah, started? Yeah, that's, that's great. 
Some attorneys are excellent estate attorneys, and I, I know some really top estate planning attorneys. Others say they're estate attorneys, but they've got a little software package that you push a button and it prints out a will and fill in and makes it makes them look like, but they, they really are not estate attorneys. Uh, and the financial planner can help you evaluate the competency of an attorney. There's one brochure that I have that I'd be happy to send to you about estate planning. And if you'd like to call the office in Raleigh, it's 872-7000. That's USA 7000. I'll be happy to mail it to you. Okay. Okay. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for calling. Bye. Goodbye now. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. And if you have a question about your situation, call us on the open line at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-WPTF. And you can join us on the show right now. Folks uh, set up in their early stages IRAs or 401ks while they're working with the hopes of being able to provide income for themselves at the end of their working days. And there, there's a subset of investors. Uh, there's an article that we saw that at 70 and a half, you need to get ready to tap your IRA. So there's a subset of investors who should be more concerned with taking money out of their traditional IRA right now. And that's namely those folks that are 70 and a half, uh, that turned 70 and a half last year. Yeah, that's right, Lynn, because from age 59 and a half to 70 and a half, you can take out whatever you want with no penalties at all. But after age 70 and a half, you have to begin withdrawing the minimum amount or face a stiff tax penalty. Well, there's uh, one question that had arisen in uh, one person's situation, and she asked, when do I take that initial required minimum distribution, and does that take care of all that I must take for that calendar year? Well, Lynn, it depends. It depends. Let's say you turned 70 and a half last year and waited until this year to take all or part of your first required minimum distribution. Then in that case, you're still required to take in 2014 your required minimum distribution that you were supposed to take last year and you'll have to go ahead and take another one. You have to do two of them. So it depends. And there was another question that was raised. Um, in which year is that first distribution taxable? And that is always going to be in the year that it comes out. So let's say that your 70 and a half was last year and you delayed it to this year and you got your your first year out this year and you got this year's required minimum distribution out. Both of those are taxable this year. And that's really just fundamentally about the account itself. Like that's you, what it you is. Know, you always say that the account itself is like the chicken house. That's right. And when that, when that, when that income, when we sell off a little bit of that chicken that's inside there and it's coming out, it's getting taxed for the first time. That's right, Deborah. That's so it's it. just income that's going to be received in that calendar year. Right. It might be the RMD for 2013, but if you take it in 2014, that income is taxable in 2014. So in retirement, one of your uh, the most important things is to see where is that income going to come from. Well, uh, another question that also came up uh, from this gentleman was that he asked if he also can have the financial institution that handles his IRA withdraw or 
I'm sorry, withhold the tax on his distribution? And if so, whether the tax itself would still count towards his required minimum distribution yeah, amount? And, yeah, that, that's an excellent question, Linda. It because, certainly is. Well, the, the question is two parts. Number one, can the IRA custodian pay the tax for you? And the answer is yes, from your IRA. And the second part of the question is, if the IRA custodian takes part of my RMD and sends it to the IRS for me, and I get the balance, does the do the two parts count as my RMD? The part that goes to the IRS, does that count as part of my RMD? And the answer to that is yes. In both cases, the answer is yes. So to go, go back to what you said to begin with, Linda, you're absolutely right. This subset of people who need to be concerned about this are learning how to take an income from a retirement plan. So now they're learning how to take income, pay taxes, and what the results need to be. Well, Doug, I, I wanted to... Uh, it, speak about this just a little bit further because, you know, the av- many of our clients uh, have accumulated assets over their lifetime. And so some of them are multimillionaires because they've, they've followed the principles that we have advised them as far as saving, investing, and planning for your future so that at that stage of life, you can be financially independent. And for some of these folks, when they have to turn the spigot on and they have to take out that money, they may not need that extra income. I see what you're saying, Linda. Because you brought up the issue of, well, this this uh, person that had the question brought up the issue of taxes. So what do we do in that case there? What do you there? do in that case? In that case there, we open up the spigot on the IRA because it has to be opened. You're over 70 and a half. And we have that RMD paid out from the IRA uh, portfolio. We also have the taxes sent to the IRS, but then that RMD, we have that directed into the personal portfolio of the client. So we might have two portfolios, one an IRA portfolio and another a non-IRA or a personal portfolio. And if they don't need it, as you say, then we have it come from one to go straight into the other. It meets the IRS requirement. So no 50% penalty. And at the same time, it keeps the money all working. Wonderful. Well, another uh, huge question or group of people that come in with a typical question are the the people who are um, accumulating, still accumulating their wealth. And there's been a big IRA shift, Doug, Linda. There really has. Because think about how many times when people come in for that first appointment and they ask us, one of the, the one of their most pressing questions is, should I, in addition to participating in my 401k, should I also have a Roth IRA? Because while you may not be able to do a, 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 a traditional IRA, or maybe even in addition to a traditional IRA, but this question comes up over and over again. And I saw some statistics in Financial Planning Magazine that were talking about uh, this very question about how it's become very surprising that eight times as much money is in Roth IRAs than traditional IRAs. And this trend reflects in part the reality of younger workers uh, recognizing that uh, while their paychecks and their might be low, lower than they might be later on, or their taxes might be lower right now. There's a widespread interest in savings, and the Roth has become a great way to save. And in addition, they were talking about how while you might, you realize when you invest in a Roth that you're going to forego the tax deductions, uh, to receive that money later in retirement tax-free can be very appealing. And a lot of people are talking about Roths, so a lot of people are asking this question when they come in. But Doug, the bottom line about this whole topic is always 
So many people know of a Roth, but they don't know how to invest in a Roth. And I guess I'm saying that badly. They know they can open up a Roth account, but they may not know what they can invest in once they have that Roth account open. So it's a two-part question. It really is. One is, should you invest in a Roth IRA? Many people come in and I tell them, no, you should not invest in a Roth IRA at all. I usually draw the line at age 40. Right. If you are over 40, you should not be investing in a Roth but you should be investing. Uh-huh. And if you're under 40, then yes, because Roths make sense only if they have enough years to accumulate because that's where the real uh, tax benefit comes in, enough years of accumulation. But then the more important question, as you just said, is the second part to the question, where should the investment be? The Roth is simply, simply like a chicken house that holds chickens. It's not the chicken. It's just the container. It's the container. And there we need to go ahead and pick different mutual funds according to the overall asset allocation of the entire client's portfolio, which would be his Roth IRA, his 401k, his personal portfolio, where his pay-yourself-first plan is going into every month, and the whole thing together. But... The, the more important question, as you just indicated, is what is the investment? And I think this is where people really fail. Sometimes they think that all they can invest in is a CD or, or, or a bond oh. mutual fund or something that needs to be, quote unquote, uh, safer than other areas. And I think this is where people really miss out. The whole point in it is to be as aggressive because if used properly, it's not going to be touched. For 20 years if you're under 40. That is an outstanding point, Deborah. If you're going to be investing using the Roth IRA vehicle, which means you're under age 40, then you need to pick a very aggressive type of mutual fund. A CD would be the worst investment, in my opinion, that a person under 40 would have putting it into a Roth IRA. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us on the open line with your questions at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-9783. And financial planning is your business. So call us at Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000 and we'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you. And, and visit our website there at DougAndLinda.com. Well, hi, I'm Doug, and you're Linda, and we said the same thing at the same time, <laughs> right, <certainly> Linda? <laughs> Go to our website, <laughs> DougAndLinda.com. <laughs> One of our favorite writers uh, got asked a question about uh, advice for investors looking to consolidate multiple IRAs. And the question said, from the reader, over the years, I've opened IRAs at various banks, depending on which one was offering the highest yielding CD. It's gotten a bit out of control as I'm nearing age 70 and a half, and I'm thinking I should consolidate these as they mature. I think I have about 25 to 30 IRAs at over 10 banks, and I'm not sure of the maturity dates or the yields as I have just left them to renew automatically. Do you think just selecting one bank to hold what would eventually be another large CD makes sense? My plan would be to have a check sent to me at the various CDs of the, as the various CDs mature and then deposit the check into my IRA at the selected bank. I realize I'd need to make sure and deposit the check within 60 days of receipt, but I don't think that would be a problem if I select a local bank allowing me to just bring the check directly to them upon receipt. My big concern with my plan is not having the FDIC insurance if my account value goes over the limit. 
$250,000. If I select a well-known bank, should this be a concern? Overall, do you think my plan makes sense? Well, of course, the plan to consolidate the IRAs makes an awful lot of sense. As a matter of fact, it's crucial. Uh, I don't like the whole idea of using CDs. That's not the reason. But we have a bigger problem if the writer doesn't consolidate, and that is a 50% tax penalty based on the uh, age 70 and a half minimum. You know, the Internal Revenue Service doesn't just give you a penalty on one IRA if you have 10 of them. Right. They want you to go ahead and, and, and use a formula which says the sum of all of my retirement accounts is on the bottom and the top is my withdrawal amount and that's my RMD. And if that withdrawal doesn't get taken out, they don't care if it comes from one IRA or 10, but you've got to get it out based on all of them. Then you get hit on a 50 with a 50% tax penalty. So you should always have only one IRA custodian. Now, the whole other part of the question about CDs and banks and, and, uh, and FDIC insurance, that's sort of a nonsense type of issue. I think the most crucial thing is that the writer should meet with a certified financial planner Definitely consolidate using one custodian. Yes. And my advice would be use a custodian that has no products. Use a custodian that is not linked to any products for the IRA and let you go ahead and then choose whatever mutual funds you want or whatever investments you want as part of the whole overall portfolio. Right. Yeah, that's the way that I would approach the issue. And most folks, Doug, at that stage and age of life, uh, really want to simplify. And, you know, basically in his question, he said it it really got out of control. Right. Going to so many banks. Well, it's going to only get more out of control if if she's 71 or he's 71 now. Ten years from now, that's 81. Uh, Life doesn't get simpler as you get older. You need to go ahead and have it in a simple format. You certainly do. Well, here we are facing a new week. We hope that everyone will have a wonderful week. And we look forward to your calls at Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. You can listen to our podcast online at WPTF.com. Join us next Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. on WPTF. Call us to set your appointment this week, 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. You've been listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with the Lewis family on News Radio 680 WP. PTF.